This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Every so often we have to play catch up on this show and, and, and sort of dig through the stack that's piled up of articles and things we want to talk about. And to do that, we usually have to kind of forsake a guest. We're not going to do that completely on today's program because we are going to have a special guest in our second or third segment. I'm not sure, but this is going to be the catch-up show, which I hear from a lot of you that you enjoy quite a bit. And frankly, we don't want to ask someone on this program after having had on General Chuck Yeager last week because, you know, that's a tough act to follow. We hope uh, you enjoyed that show. We certainly did, and we would... uh, Remind you that all of our programs virtually, going back to year one, are available on our website, radioparallax.com. Oh, I did get a complaint recently that uh, our list of guests has not been updated, and indeed it has not. But uh, what you might want to do is scroll through some of the last couple years' worth of programs, and you'll, you'll pick everybody up. Guests such as author Gerald Nachman talking about uh, Ed Sullivan and... More recently, about the great rebel comics of the 50s and 60s. Talked to William Poundstone about his book, Priceless, The Myth of Fair Value and How to Take Advantage of It. And journalist Jefferson Morley talked about some uh, discoveries he made about our own Central Intelligence Agency. And that reminds me, we've got to get Jeff Morley back on this show. Uh, He's about due. Anyway, lots of good stuff on our website. Check it out. And, of course, you can always drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. But let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question, of course, is the 8th of July. It was in July 8th in 52 BC that Julius Caesar conquered a fishing village called Lutetia Parisorium, occupied by the Parisi, which were Gauls. Under Roman rule, it acquired considerable importance and was eventually renamed Paris. As such, this is the date that is usually associated with the founding of the City of Light. On this date in 1497, the Portuguese navigator Vasco da Gama sailed from Lisbon in search of a sea route to India, which he discovered by sailing around the southern tip of Africa. As a result of his trip, the Portuguese King Emmanuel I conferred on him the title of Admiral of the Indian Ocean. As far as I know, the Indians were not all that happy with Vasco. Turns out he wasn't such a nice guy. Good sailor, though. And like all Portuguese, a great navigator. And it was on July 8th in 1881 that the first ice cream sundae was served by Edward Burner at Two Rivers, Wisconsin. It was so named because he offered it only on Sundays. Eight years later on this date in 1889, the first issue of the Wall Street Journal hits the stands in New York City. Radio Parallax enjoys quoting from the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal simply because they are absolutely reliable and usually being wrong. Some people, folks, insist the reporting's good, though. I don't know. I I, I won't go there. And this might be a good time to mention that the opinions you hear on this program, like that one, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. But having said all that, the editorial pages of the journal are still nuts. And on July 8th, 1922, trumpet player Louis Armstrong leaves his hometown of New Orleans 
taking a train to Chicago. You've been invited to play with King Oliver's famous jazz band. Playing with Oliver, Armstrong became one of the most influential figures in the history of jazz. Our quote of the day comes from Stanislaw Lech, who said, When smashing monuments, save the pedestals. They always come in handy. That comes to us from the Oxford Book of Aphorisms, sent to us by avid listener Millie. Thank you, Millie. Our quote of the day comes from Bob Hope, who said, No one party can fool all the people all the time. That's why in America we have two parties. Our quip-joke of the day comes from the author William S. Burroughs, who once said, After one look at this planet, any visitor from outer space would say, I want to see the manager. And our stat of the day, and actually we have several, comes from this month's Harper's Index. I think we'll pick four. Estimated number of categories of products that are currently available for sale in the Gaza Strip. 4,000. Number of those that are legally imported into Gaza, 73. Yes, apparently Israel has prohibited the importation of lentils, fearing they may be, I guess, used in a bomb. How about this one? Chance, chances that a new Afghan police recruit knows how to read, 1 in 10. We'll talk more about Afghanistan in a minute. And finally, my personal favorite, the minutes of reporting on the Iraq war aired so far this year on network television news programs. That would be 14 minutes. But yes, folks, there, there still is a war going on over there. A pointless one, which apparently has no objectives other than to make some wealthy people even wealthier. But lest I digress, let us move on to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Apparently it was a good week a couple weeks back for the Blues Brothers. After the Il Observatore Romano, the official Vatican newspaper, bestowed upon the classic 1980s comedy an endorsement of being a Catholic film. As you will recall, in the movie, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, playing Jake and Elwood Blues, did say they were on a mission from God. Said the paper, this is a memorable film, and judging by the facts, a Catholic one. And as God is my witness, I'm not making the following up. Apparently on the film's 30th anniversary, the Vatican devoted five articles to that topic. That's according to Reuters. The Vatican looked at Jake's, Jake's story, specifically focusing on how he was released from prison, and then worked to reunite his blues band in order to save St. Helen of the Blessed Shroud Orphanage as an emulation of the life of Christ. In addition, sources say, and and I'm not making this up, that Pope Benedict XVI is totally into car chases. And apparently it was a bad week a few weeks back for common courtesy, after a British survey found that 84% of pregnant women had not been offered a seat on full trains. And here's the ouch. According to the survey, 
There, is so, there are now so many obese women that fellow commuters couldn't be sure if the standee was pregnant or just fat. And in this, we have to refer to the immortal Dave Barry, who gave this sound piece of advice that you should never, ever refer to a woman as being pregnant unless you actually see the baby emerging from her body at that moment. And finally, it was an ugly week for science in Russia. A few weeks back, when a senior cleric in the Russian Orthodox Church called for creationism to be taught alongside evolution, echoing repeated calls from creationists in the United States. Reuters reported that Hilarion Alfayev said during a lecture in Moscow last month that he wanted to end the monopoly on Darwinism in schools. Yes, we're looking forward to a resurgence of Lysenkoism in Russia. If you missed our previous discussion on Trofim Lysenko on this program, we would suggest that you either go to our archives or look it up on Google. But best, I think, would be to go to our archives and listen to our interview with author Peter Pringle about his book on Nikolai Vavilov. It's one of the great uh, episodes of stupidity triumphing over science in recent memory. All right, Davis has made uh, the big time in the news department for a quirky item. That item being the suggestion by Austin Sendek, a 20-year-old UC Davis student who's trying to get scientists around the world to use the term hella to denote the unimaginably huge, seldom-cited quantity of 10 to the, to the 27th power. Now, I think normally 10 to the 27th power would be what, an octillion? Yeah, and let's face it, you don't, you don't need that number a lot. But, starting as a joke... Austin Sendek's petition on Facebook to the Consultative Committee on Units, subdivision of the Bureau International de, I guess it's Poids de Measures, has drawn more than 60,000 supporters around the world. Note to the Los Angeles Times, Hella, a term many Southern Californians find as irritating as teary-eyed renditions of I left my heart in San Francisco, is used mainly to make adjectives more intense, as in, this lentil pizza is hella healthful. It can also convey simple exuberance. That party at Sunshine's house? Hella. Noted the Times, Hella probably derived from Helleva, and for reasons unknown, morphed into Hella in the Bay Area before taking wings in the 1990s. Sendek says the IDES sprang from physics class. I asked my lab partner how many volts were in this electric field, and she said offhandedly, oh man, there's hella volts. He recalled it, adding, it kind of clicked. All right, I suppose we're going to have to get uh, Austin Sendek on the show. If you know Austin or Austin, if you're listening, drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax, and we'll see what we can do. All right, and from the mailbag, we want to thank Gary for sending, this, uh, sending us this article from the thefinancialpost.com about the BP oil spill. I think I want a quote from this. Article by Lawrence Solomon opened as follows. Some are attuned to the possibility of looming catastrophe and know how to head it off. Others are unprepared and unable to get their priorities straight when risk turns into reality. The Dutch fall into the first group. Three days after the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico began, the Netherlands offered the U.S. government ships equipped to handle a major spill, one much larger than the spill that appeared to be underway. Our system can handle 200 cubic meters per hour, said the chairman of the Spill Response Group Holland. 
Noted Solomon, the Dutch know how to handle maritime emergencies. In the event of an oil spill, the Netherlands government, which owns its own ships and high-tech skimmers, gives an oil company 12 hours to demonstrate it has the spill in hand. If the company shows signs of unpreparedness, the government dispatches its own ships at the oil company's expense. Witness the American reaction to the Dutch offer of help. The U.S. government responded with, thanks, but no thanks. I don't know, interesting article, but I guess there's probably no more about who Lawrence Solomon is, the author. Because there certainly is a lot of politics mixed up in this oil spill. We have neglected to mention up till now the comment by Joe Barton, the Texas congressman and senior Republican on the House Energy Committee, who last week apologized to the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to the CEO of BP, Tony Hayward, when he appeared before Congress, telling him during the congressional hearings that he was ashamed of Obama's, quote, shakedown, unquote. The Republican leadership uh, then uh, then jumped in to uh, get Barton to apologize for his, for his apology. But uh, meanwhile, a federal judge down in New Orleans a uh, week before last blocked a six-month moratorium on deepwater drilling. Said the judge... The Obama administration had failed to justify such a blanket, generic, indeed punitive moratorium on deep water oil and gas drilling. Why, my goodness, this effort could hurt some people economically. Meanwhile, this spill, which has now exceeded the Ixstock 2 blowout of a couple decades back, which, would, which had previously been the world's largest known oil spill, Shows no signs whatsoever of being controlled by anyone's effort. And here's the part that gets me. While we're spending money for uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we're not doing anything about the marshes down in the Gulf Coast. Remember all the talk in the wake of Hurricane Katrina about how delicate these ecosystems were and how how they were being destroyed by, um, well, Army Corps of Engineers' efforts to straighten the Mississippi? New Scientist magazine sounded off about this uh, last month, noting that... uh, that among coastal habitats, marshes are by far the biggest worry in the wake of the spill. They are both a crucial wildlife habitat and an important buffer between New Orleans and the hurricane-prone Gulf. The marshes are already eroding at an alarming rate as a consequence of engineering projects that have constrained the wanderings of the Mississippi and carved out navigation channels. Remember all that talk after Katrina? We're going to have to spend some money to, uh, to fix things down there, replenish the, the marshes, and basically allow the Mississippi to slow down. The Army Corps got this bright idea that you could, you know, you could create an economic boom by cutting shortcuts through the Mississippi so that ships could move up and down more quickly. Well, apparently it did that. It also sped up the flow of the river as it moved south and altered the deposition of silt so that uh, it wasn't deposited on the marshes like it had been in the past, which continues to cause them to erode away. Fixing it will cost some money, and nobody seems to want to spend the money. This is going to compound the problems of the oil spill. I want to thank the good people at uh, the Sacramento Bee and the McClatchy organization for their continuing uh, excellent coverage of this eco-disaster, and we refer you to www.mcclatchydc.com slash oil spill for more information. And apparently you can also find some coverage on your smartphone at mcclatchydc.com slash iPhone. And The Economist magazine had an article about the other oil spill, worth quoting from a bit. 
We talked in this program recently about how uh, in Indonesia and Malaysia, they are whacking down rainforests at an alarming rate to plant palm orchards. Per the magazine stats, between 1967 and 2000, the area under cultivation in Indonesia expanded from less than 2,000 square kilometers to more than 30,000 square kilometers. The deforestation in Indonesia for palm oil and illegal logging is so rapid that a report in 2007 by the UN Environmental Program said most of the country's forest might be destroyed by 2022. The deforestation is making Indonesia one of the world's largest carbon dioxide emitters. But some people are angry about this. They're calling for a boycott of palm oil, and uh, some folks were suggesting that you may want to boycott Unilever. Palm oil uh, is a component of soap. In fact, if my memory serves me correct, palm olive comes from palm and olive oils used in soap. Some companies are, are hearing these calls for a boycott and using other products like coconut oil instead. We will continue to follow this story. This might be a good moment to plug a book which we've not read, but like the review of in New Scientist magazine. It's titled, How Bad Are Bananas? The Carbon Footprint of Everything by Mike Berners-Lee. Wrote the magazine, ever wondered what the carbon footprint of a text message is? Or a pint of milk? Or perhaps a pair of trousers? Well, Mike Berners-Lee has done the numbers crunching to come up with the answers. Or exposed to a flood of all-too-often contradictory tips on greener living, making environmentally responsible decisions a perplexing business. Berners-Lee wanted that to change, and he's declared the purpose of his book is to give us all a carbon instinct. How bad are bananas is packed with information about the everyday things we do and use that perhaps we did not realize had any impact on the environment at all. So the magazine, it's an engaging book that manages to present serious science without preaching. And you know, if you read this book, that's another reason to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We're going to have to look into this. And certainly our pals over at the News and Review have been looking into uh, this very issue. Recent article by Cosmo Garvin at the Sacramento News and Review about Sacramento's total carbon awareness. I think you might want to read this even if you don't live in Sacramento. It is, after all, a fairly typical uh, metropolitan area. Anyway, we're heading for the final of the World Cup here pretty soon. And God knows, someone's got to win this thing. And as much as I've enjoyed my trips to South Africa in the past, I think it's going to be a very, very long time before they're allowed to host such an event again. The hated Vuvuzela, described as one of the most irritating noises on Earth, could only have been a part of this grand spectacle if the games were held in South Africa. TV audiences around the world <laughs> complained about the constant noise, which sounded like an angry hive of bees. The instrument was described as being based on an ancient African horn, originally blown at tribal ceremonies and later used to scare away baboons. However, the vuvuzelas currently being used were manufactured in China and were cheap plastic devices, which I guess people just blew out of boredom. I gather that during the apartheid era, it became, uh, they became ubiquitous at soccer games and because blowing vuvuzelas was one of the only ways that black South Africans could cut loose. Now it is considered an inseparable part of watching a soccer game. If you want someone to blame, apparently it's Sepp Blatter, 
the head of the world soccer body who refused to bow to pressures to ban (laughs) Vuvuzela at the World Cup. Now, apparently the five Chinese factories that worked overtime to turn out 20,000 horns a day are hoping that the craze will continue after the World Cup ends. Said one factory owner, we are already looking at other opportunities, hoping that the Vuvuzela would become the sound of soccer, not just in South Africa, but all over the world. But you know, now that I think about it, if soccer had a sound, it might well be the Vuvuzela. They're loud, they're pointless, they sound one note, and they go on forever. If that isn't soccer, I don't know what is. Anyway, stop. Please don't send the hate mail. I'm just having a little fun with you, you soccer fans, you. Personally, this correspondent is truly heartbroken at the fact that the finals will not include either Paraguay or Uruguay. I was envisioning the possibility about a week ago that it would be those two teams, the Battle of the Gways for the World Cup, but alas, it's not to be. Now let's hear from our old pal, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys. Will Durst here, trying to get something straight. Now, the World Cup is supposed to be the most exciting sporting event on the planet, right? So what's second place? The New England Spinsters Knitting Circle Seniors Tour? And supermodels filling in crossword puzzles with ink pens would be a close third. Now, Ferdley passes it to Rodriguez, who passes it back to Ferdley, who passes it to Rodriguez, who stands still for a robust 20 seconds. Genius tactical move. They've really put the attack back on the full boil now. Rodriguez passes it back to Ferdley, who takes a shot at... Oh, it bounces off the crossbar. And so late in the second extra time, the score remains nil, nil. You can't tell who anybody is, because the only camera angle has the lens attached to the inside rim of the Hubble telescope as an added attraction. This year, the entire length of all 64 games has been accompanied by about 100,000 horns known as the Vuvuzela. A long plastic tube with a mouthpiece that plays a single note. A single droning note. Sounds like they're playing inside of a hornet's nest that's been microwaved under frost for 20 minutes. Rumor has it that CIA is looking into appropriating them for interrogations. To say that the officiating has been a bit erratic is like saying that BP's cleanup of the Gulf has been less than exhaustive. The referees have missed goals and calls and handed out red cards to people who did nothing except be near someone who fell down for no apparent reason. Not just fell down, but fell down holding their face, writhing in agony. The hell is that? These guys would last about 15 seconds in the NFL. Another reason why soccer will never catch on over here. Americans don't care about any sport that doesn't involve eighth of a ton no-neck brain-dead pieces of premium beef tearing each other apart like the last sack of powdered milk in a United Nations relief tent in Kandahar. And after all, in soccer, that's the fan's job. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Go! Let's take a short break. Before we go, though, I have to mention that when I saw one soccer game described as a rout, with the score being four to nothing, that's what I knew for sure. It's never going to catch on in America. In football, a route is a score of maybe 42 to 3. In baseball, a route is 11 to 1. Any sport 
where it's a route if you manage to score four times in a 90-minute contest. Anyway, enough said. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. <laughs> 